0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with Benjamin Hoyt, Associate Professor of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Ben's latest book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands, is the recipient of the AHA's Albert Corey Prize in the History of Canadian-American Relations. In A Line of Blood and Dirt, Benjamin Shows, How the U.S.-Canadian Border Was Built Across Indigenous Lands. Ben, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Of course, uh, you know, I, I think this is a, r- a really fascinating topic. I, I personally am, am very fascinated by, by border issues. And, and of course, border issues are, are frequently uh, in the news. And I think that the historical lens that you take is is very uh, invaluable uh, for you know, interpreting the world today. Uh, so before jumping to the book, I was just wanted to you could tell us a little bit about
2: yourself and your background. Sure. So I uh, I was born in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, and then spent much of my early life crisscrossing the Canada-US border. I lived in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Ontario, sort of back and forth between there. I did my PhD in California, and I'm now a associate professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan. So the border has sort of been a big part of my life um, from the very get-go. Would you what actually like led to this book in particular?
1: Like the the idea behind it was there a particular uh, you know thing that you maybe stumbled across in an archive or you know an experience you had at a border that made you think oh this would be a great topic?
2: Yeah, so I I came to this topic in a really roundabout way. So you know, given my background, you'd think oh you know borders would be an, a natural pick as you're sort of looking through topics, but I actually. For a long time, thought I was going to do either Russian history or medieval history. Those were the things that sort of captivated me as an undergraduate. And even as a PhD student, uh, going into the master's and then PhD, I thought I was really going to focus in on the Canadian census. Um, I'd been part of a project that was digitizing these, these amazing historical documents. Uh, and I was really interested in tracing mobility. And so it sort of all started with learning about the census and learning about population movements. Um, and and as I was learning about this, I, I kept, I, I started with what I thought was a really simple question, which is just people are crossing this border. What is this border and and sort of how does it work? And uh, that left 10 more years of research as I figured out I had absolutely no idea how this border worked in practice. And by the end of that, all the work I'd done on the census uh, didn't even make the final cut, doesn't appear anywhere in the book. Uh, sort of became some spin-off projects, but that's one of those moments where you think you have such a simple piece and then you end up in this deep rabbit hole of, you know, this simple topic became unbelievably complicated. And I became really invested and really curious about how this border that had meant so much to my life, how it was built and how it continued to affect lives in different ways, both in the past and the present. Before jumping into the details, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about,
1: and I'm sure anyone who's seen a map, you know, knows. A little bit about what the us-canadian border looks like but could you just describe a little bit of what that border is um and you know for example if someone is along the border crossing the border what it might look like at various uh, junctures
2: yeah that's a really interesting question so the map that i think most people are familiar with uh, the, the depiction is just the depiction you'd see on a map so a single unbroken line between two countries that's amazingly clear to everyone and it's just it's not ambiguous but that's not the border in practice even today. And it certainly wasn't the case in the 19th century. So, you know, right when they're creating the border, all it is, is a pile of stones. Some surveyors go to go out onto the land. They put either markers that are like little obelisks or piles of stones or something like that. And they're placed three kilometers, three miles apart, you know, sometimes as close as maybe a kilometer apart in areas that are less settled, quite a bit further apart. And you can imagine this is a problem when you put these right through the middle of a forest, right? Like you you wouldn't even see them. And so as part of the initial boundary survey, they cut down all the trees on along the borderline, which if you're doing that across a continent, you can imagine is just unbelievable amounts of work. And so that's the early border, just piles of stones. And they they don't last very long. You know, on the prairies, for example, uh, bison have this really... Uh, awful habit of rubbing up against the stones to itch. And within 10 years, the, the, the stones that they'd spent so much time putting up are just, you know, back down onto the earth. And so not only are the border stones and sort of markers hard to see unless you're looking for them, uh, but they have to be constantly replaced. Trees have an awful habit of regrowing and suddenly that forest that you put the, the boundary through is a forest again. Um, And so the second part of a a border is of course the people, you know, you, you police them with customs officials, immigration officials, uh, Indian agents, things like that. Um, but for much of the borders history, all of those people are stationed guarding uh, the Atlantic ocean or the Pacific ocean because the border, right? It's not just about land, it's about water as well. And if you want to control commerce, you want to control the oceans. And so you'll see border patrols, um, border agents all the way down the St. Lawrence, right? Large amounts of population there, large amounts of commerce. You'll see them on the oceans. And then where I live in Saskatchewan today, there's almost no one. You have, depending on the time period, as little as three people guarding everywhere from the Rocky Mountains to the Great Lakes. You know, that's a thousand miles of territory and you've got a handful of people on horseback doing it you know, over time that grows, but it's, it's never enough to actually guard the border in the way that we might imagine it today.
1: Could you, could you give a bit of an overview of, of some of the indigenous groups that lived uh, in areas that crossed both of the borders or were near the borders, some of the, the groups that you focus on uh, in the book and, uh, you know, how life started to change once European settlers began to arrive in these areas along the
2: borderlands? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a a great question. And it's going to really depend on the group that you look at. So every indigenous community will have a different story um, about how the border impacted their life and depending on their, their sort of lived circumstances, when the border is being built, some groups helped build the border. Um, so especially on the West coast, you have hundreds of indigenous laborers and guides and surveyors from the Coast Salish and elsewhere, um, who are participating in the border. In other areas, they're driving surveyors out, especially in the prairies, or at least discussing the possibility of, of simply killing surveyors, right? In, in many ways, it's kind of crazy to think about, but it would be like me going to France and saying, ah, I'm going to establish the Republic of Hoy, and I've brought some surveyors with me, and I'm, I'm just going to go right through an existing nation, surveying and, and demarcating and dividing up land, right? The same is happening in North America this time. And groups like the Assiniboine or the Sioux, uh, the Métis, the Cree, and others, you know, are are uncertain about what to do. Should they um, should they be um, good hosts and allow these surveyors to pass through? Um, should they see this as an act of of aggression and execute them? And if so, what are going to be the implications? And so you'll see all different kinds of responses. So some communities, for example, will use the border to protect their access. Um, to the remaining herds of bison, right? If the border is drawn across their lands, then they can get American soldiers to help police the border for them. They don't actually care about the border, but they're protect they they're using it as a way to protect their own homelands. So you have that kind of response all the way to um, resisting the border um, militarily or sort of challenging the dominion of Canada and the United States uh, who are coming into your lands. Um, so every group, very different story even on an individual level. Um, but you see every everything from complete cooperation or at least not complete, um, qualified cooperation in this specific circumstance all the way to sort of um, a direct challenge to what's happening.
1: Prior to the arrival of, of the Europeans, uh, what was the sense of the border like? Was, was there such a thing as a border? Uh, you know, how did different uh, tribes demarcate one area from another, if they even did.
2: Yeah. So this, like, like you say, is going to really depend on the group. So on the on the West Coast, um, which has probably the strongest sense of like very clear territorial markings, trespassing on another group's land is punishable by death um, in some cases. But the the territory is less abstract, in, in some ways, um, in a lot of ways, I think. Indigenous communities across North America had a much more intuitive sense of territory. They're focused in around controlling resource sites, right? Which is the whole point of territory, right? These would be controlling uh, prominent fisheries, drying areas, um, gathering sites, um, uh, connections between rivers, right that the most important pieces of territory. Um, rather than just drawing sort of abstract lines, across a a parallel, right? Which is going to cut rivers in half. It's going to cut all sorts of things in awkward chunks that don't make sense to lived experience. Um, So that's sort of, I think the biggest difference, indigenous senses of territory are less abstracted along parallels or along abstract lines and are focused in around the things that matter in society, access to resources, access to transportation. So a very strong sense of of territory and ownership, um, stewardship, especially. It wasn't just, you know, control over it, it had, you had responsibilities to the territories that, um, you controlled. And I think that's a little bit different than what you see coming later, where it's distant administrators signing treaties over lands that they have absolutely no conception of, um. So yeah, I think they're they're quite different. Again, it will depend by the community, but the Coast Salish, you know, very strong senses. But in other areas, it would be, um, you know, like the prairies, less about um, abstract territory of nations and more about family connections, right? If you had wide family connections, it was easier to move through many different territories. So kinship was one way that you could really expand your ability to move.
1: I was wondering if you could describe. Uh, some of the ways in which indigenous communities were dispossessed by Americans and and the British Canadians when they came in. Uh, You know, if there's any particular, you you discuss many different stories in the book, but if there's any particular story that you think the listeners might find particularly uh, interesting or, you know, illustrative.
2: Yeah. Um, So there's dozens of different stories about this in the book, but one of the ones that stands out to me, I think, is on the Pacific coast, um, in the 1840s, uh, the Canadian United States have this, this problem where they've come into this territory they don't control. There are many, many strong indigenous groups, the Coast Salish among them, um, who ha- have a demographic majority. Right there, there are a lot of people there, tens of thousands of indigenous people and relatively few settlers. And there's this pressing concern that violence against settlers on one side of the border will spill out across the other. So this is a moment of a lot of tenseness between Canada and the United States. You know, 54, 40 or fight, right? Debates about territory that are pushing Britain and the United States closer to war. At this very moment where they're they're anxious uh, with one another, they're anxious about all sorts of things, you see British and American soldiers sharing resources. Um, as gunships are moving up and down the coast to try and put down indigenous resistance, you're seeing the other country sort of on the ground administrators supplying uh, food and supplies and other things, because they see themselves as having a shared future. You know, regardless of where the border is drawn, they see themselves as having much more in common with one another than with the indigenous people around them. And in some ways, this is the older sense of what you'd expect a border to be, which is, right, if you think about the geography of North America, there's a giant mountain separating the west coast from the other parts of North America. And you would imagine that British Columbia and Washington state would have a great deal more in common than they would with say, Alberta and Montana. Um, and so you have this, this moment where you're finding all of this resistance, and then after that happens, Britain and Canada have to somehow draw a border across those and make them feel separate again. Um, so you see a lot of cooperation between the two um, European powers more so than you might expect for countries that sort of flirted with war on and off and were, were very much not friends into the 1860s. Um, and yet when it comes to concerns about indigenous people, they're willing to put aside their differences because they see themselves as having more in common with the people who end up uh, suffering the brunt of a lot of violence. That also connects
1: a lot to the sort of description that you have of, of a, of a compare, just comparing the U.S. Canada border versus the U.S-Mexico border. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk about how these two borders have been just conceived differently uh, in, you know in, in policy, especially U.S. policy, to how they want to uh, police the, their, those various borders.
2: Yeah, so one of the surprising things that I found was that early on, so we're talking mid-19th century, The United States is spending just as much money, just sending just as many personnel up to guard the Canada border as it is uh, down south to guard the Mexico border. And in fairness, the borders are quite different. Canada's border with the United States is almost twice as long. So there's less people per square mile. Um, But in terms of money spent, there's quite a few years where they're spending roughly the same amount. Um, But that's really going to change over time. And I think a lot of it has to do with this sense of, a commonality, um, you know, into the 1890s, the United States is still imagining a world in which Canada would become part of the United States. There's a beautiful picture that a magazine called Puck released. Uh, it's called Patient Waiters, and it's a uh, picture of it's in the book. And there's a, a beautiful tree um, filled with apples, and underneath the tree is Uncle Sam with a basket. And in his basket are all the territories the United States has, has come to conquer. Um, Hawaii, Alaska, you know, a bunch of other places. And on the tree are a bunch of other apples, including one labeled Canada. And Uncle Sam is standing under there, patiently waiting for Canada to drop into his basket. Um, and so there's there's an idea that Canada could become part of the United States, either directly, you know, an incorporation as another state, or I think what happened more, uh, more practically that it became a part of the United States culturally, economically, and all of these other ways, but maintained some semblance of political independence. Um, but it, that its future was tied to the United States. That same kind of imagination, I don't think applies south of the border. Um, ideas about racial difference, um, political difference, you know, can the United States come from a common mother, they both come from uh, Britain. Um, Mexico has a, a very different history. And you'll see that in the treatment of um, uh, the annexation of California and all of those other places where many of the the former residents of of Spanish territory become white by law, but not socially, not in practice. And you'll see this play out in the Philippines, in Cuba, elsewhere, where the United States was looking to move into, but was never interested in incorporating um, some of those places as full citizens in the way that they were Canada and, and other areas.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Elsewhere in the book, you argue that Canada and the US designed their border to operate as a prism of control Mm -hmm. that drew from two distinct forms of power. I was wondering if you could elaborate uh, and explain this analogy, because
2: I I find it very, uh, very interesting. Yeah. So the, the two forms of power that you're talking about are direct power, which is what I think most people think of when they think about the border. So this is stopping people at the border itself. So these are, you know, your customs officials, your immigration officials, those kinds of things, right? That's the, the piece that the public sees about a border. So that's called direct power. Indirect power is about stopping movement before it even begins. So this would be about um, threats of hassle. So all those trips that you're like, ah, I'd love to cross the border, but like, I don't want to sit in line for six hours, right? That's never going to appear on an official record right? that That's a border crossing that could have been, but isn't. Or um, stripping people of their employment or the fear around that so that they, they don't actually make the journey. And the idea about the prism is that the border doesn't treat people the same. So just like white light enters a prism and gets stratified into dozens of different colors, right? That's essentially what I think a border aims to do, or certainly in this case, aim to do, was that The border never intended to treat people the same. The power of the border, that the reason it was so appealing to Canada, the United States was that it, it could treat people differently. It could let some people pass through with, you know, the, the minorest of inconveniences, you know, maybe a, a handful of minutes spent at the border crossing, you know, a slight delay and for other people, right? It could stop them from returning home entirely, right? It became an almost complete wall. Or it was you know a humiliating experience um, where you were, you know, um, poked and prodded, asked to remove clothing, or came with fees, um, or asked really embarrassing questions, right? A very different kind of border, a much more invasive border. And that both of those borders and everything in between existed together. and that that was the power that the government gained was it could force some people to go through this really, Sort of oppressive, irritating border, and others could just pass through freely, so that commerce could continue. How would you compare uh, the
1: sort of the outcomes and lives of indigenous people that ended up on the U.S. side versus those who ended up on the Canadian side of the border?
2: Another really good, good question. Um, and maybe the way to think about this is that both countries will create refugees. I think Canada often prides itself on being better than the United States, but more often than not, that's a matter of um, that's a matter of logistics, more than a matter of intent, let's say. So both countries will create reserves and reservations. Both countries will see staggering demographic declines. Both countries will create things like boarding schools and residential schools. Um, both countries will create. Um, very sad histories, Um, and you'll see different Indigenous nations respond to this in different ways. Um, So following the 1885 violence in Canada, um, Big Bear's people um, will flee to the United States, knowing what's happening in the United States at the same time. And shortly before, um, Chief Joseph's people, the Nimipu, will flee north into Canada, you know, in, in both cases, trying to escape violence, trying to escape, uh, hardship, trying to build a better life for their people. Um, you know, some indigenous groups will move back and forth across the border, trying to, trying to create, um, better situations. And in many cases will struggle to do so. So little bears people, um, for example, will, will stay in Montana, uh, become part of the Rocky boy reserve and elsewhere, others will return to Canada, um, But that splintering of, of that community still matters a hundred years later. Um, you know, there's still community organizers bringing those uh, descendants of those, um, that community back together each year. Um, so years later the the violence that, that Canada takes part in is, um, is still having an effect. So with that said, you know, the United States will fight in wars far more often than Canada hundreds and hundreds of battles. So there's a lot more um, explicit violence south of the border. Um, that's, that's certainly the case, but for the outcomes of a lot of people, if you're looking at demographic decline, whether that's through military violence, or you're looking at disease or, or other things, it doesn't paint the prettiest of picture for those who were north of the line either.
1: I was wondering if you could talk about uh, the experience of, of maybe a group like the, the Dakota or the Lakota, what their experience was like with, with border closures.
2: Yeah, so uh, both the Lakota and the Dakota following violence with the United States will move up into Canada, and that's one of the areas where the border becomes really interesting. One of the first things that a government does when it builds a border is it relinquishes some power. And this is the most frustrating part of border control. In, in many ways, when you build a border, you're saying my soldiers won't go past this line, Lakota and Dakota, um, very intelligently realize that this is going to happen. Um, and when they start, um, when they, when they feel like they can't win the war, they'll relocate north, um, or the soldiers won't continue their chase. Um, Lakota, uh, temporarily, but the Dakota long-term, um, But even north of the border, even in in Prince Albert um, and the sort of areas in Saskatchewan and Manitoba that that some end up in, there's still not that feeling of safety. Um, So there's a number of of stories in the book that talk about uh, burial practices where there's fears that American soldiers will come up north of the border and either interfere with Dakota lives, commit violence, or grave rob. And in some cases, uh... Individuals, not soldiers, but individuals paid for by the uh, U.S. Army will come up north and will kidnap a medicine bottle um, and others uh, to bring them down uh, into the United States to stand trial. So, you know, violating British sovereignty, and this happens on the small scale. It doesn't happen with full armies. Um, but if you're living up north, you know, the fear that someone's going to come up and kidnap you uh, and execute you south of the line. That that's a sort of pervasive fear that goes long past where the border actually demarcates u s power beyond
1: um, uh, the European settlers that you talk about and the the experience of indigenous groups, you also talk about the experiences of Chinese immigrants and also African Americans. and I was wondering if you could talk about um you know what what their experiences were like in the borderlands as well.
2: yeah, so uh, another set of somewhat uh, sad stories, Um, but I think much of your audience may know about um, the United States especially was not a welcoming place for Chinese immigrants. Um, There was some desire to have uh, people who could work in canneries, fisheries, on the railroad, a bunch of different industries, um, but not um, not a lot of support for actually letting people become citizens, building families, things like that. You can see that from some of the earliest policies. By the 1880s, concerns in uh, California and elsewhere had led to uh, policies that uh, first become known as Chinese restriction in 1882, and Chinese exclusion by 1888. Um, and Beth Lou Williams is a wonderful historian who sort of goes into all of this. But for those living in Canada, there or Mexico for that matter, there is an opportunity created by the United States trying to draw these Hard walls uh, to prevent Chinese immigration and the relatively smaller walls that Canada and Mexico are creating. So Canada will first implement a head tax um, so a, a, an entry fee essentially. And this creates a back door into the United States. Entering the United States from a port city fairly challenging um, right It's easy to concentrate immigration officials around a single port it's next to impossible to stop all movement across a border that's 5,000 miles long. And so um, Canada becomes a way, a sort of backdoor into the United States. And there's all sorts of different ways in. Uh, One of the most interesting is called the transit privilege. Um, So a a Chinese immigrant or another immigrant for that matter would say that they want to pass through the United States between Mexico and Canada or Canada and Mexico, and then would just um, not make the complete journey, right? You're allowed to to cross nations, but they would just essentially forfeit a bond, um, and, and stay, or you'd hire a smuggler to bring you into the country or one of a hundred different ways. in. um, and this creates a real challenge for the United States who wants Canada to match its immigration policy, right? To create sort of a, a cohesive border, um, across the continent and Canada uh, doesn't necessarily follow that, or certainly not at the speed at which the United States would uh, would desire. And this creates a lot of challenges. And for the Chinese immigrants themselves, um, there is certainly um, potential to make a fair bit of money compared to what could be made back home, but it's a very unwelcoming environment. Very hard to, um, hard to fit in, limited jobs that you would have access to, um, and a sort of a constant fear that you're under scrutiny. That um, whether or not you were in the country legally or not, that your papers could be challenged, that um, that you were much more visible in a negative sense than many of the other immigrants who made North America the, their home. I was wondering if you could also talk about the uh, you know the African American
1: experience along the borderlands.
2: Sure. Um, so this is this is. Uh, this is uh, regionally concentrated, um, in a number of different places. Um, you see this, uh, most of what I focus in on is what becomes Ontario. So sort of the great lakes. Um, and these are a number of uh, settlements, the Queens Bush settlement and others, um, that are formed for a lot of different reasons, in some cases, escaping, uh, slavery. Um, and that's the story that I think Canada is really proud to tell As you know, we're, we're much better than the United States. Um, but the experience of a lot of the people across the border up north is, is not altogether happy. Um, and I guess the most interesting part about that in the way that I think that's most apparent is as the civil war is occurring, many of the, many of the, um, the men from these communities will go down south to participate in the war. Um, you know, they still see their future as, as linked to their families back home and following the civil war, many of the Northern communities um, Will relocate to the south into the United States once slavery is ended. That, given the choice, um, that family matters more than the, the refuge that uh, Canada had once provided. Um, and some of that's the sort of social slights um, that remain. I think we we think of borders as policy, and that certainly matters, right? Chinese exclusion it matters, right? It it sets your ability to do things. But a lot of what I've learned about the border is how much local, local social situations impacted people's lives, childhood bullying, um, your access to newspapers uh, and correspondence from family members back home, right? The, the feeling of connection. Those are the types of things that really shaped the ways people wrote about the border when they, when they wrote their memoirs, when they, when they sent letters back home to family and their diaries and other things. Very few people, if any, write about, oh, you know, I just found out the US is implementing policy XXX, you know, it's like, that's not how people think about borders, right? They don't think about abstract national or international policies being signed, right? They're talking much more personal terms about, I can't send you a Christmas gift. Because there's a tariff on the particular kind of good that I want to send, right that's how they experience that that national policy on a on a personal level
1: i I think uh you know sort of sticking with this you know looking at at granular uh the like granular sort of human experience of the border, you mentioned at the outset that you spent you know, ten years mm-hmm. or so on this project, so I imagine you probably spent so much time looking through different archives, reading newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, looking at different oral oral histories. So, you know, wh- what are some of the, some of the things that you saw that helped you put together this story?
2: Yeah. So I, I looked at all different kinds of, of information. And the one that I think was most unique was I, I wanted to map the border. Um, so I pulled out all of the pay lists, so all the immigration agents, all the customs agents, all the Northwest Mounted police, all the people who have some role with border control. And I thought, what happens if we map it? So instead of looking at that line where it's a single unbroken line across the entire border, what happens if we map the people who are actually on the ground and how that changes? And then you can see where the governments care, right? They care about both coasts. They leave most of the border across the middle open. And then I started to compare that to the lived experiences of people in each region, right? Did the concentration of border guards change people's lives and to some extent, it did, and in other ways, it didn't. And it really changed the way I thought about the border. I realized that one of the things that um, that both governments did is they relied really heavily on indirect power, right? Stopping journeys before they even began. When you only have a handful of people in a region, one you have to rely on local support. So there might only be you know three or four agents in a given area, but if they have hundreds, uh, a network of hundreds of people who are giving them tips about movement and things like that, um, that really amplifies their ability to do their work. But it also means the border's really uneven. So if the local community is concerned about Chinese immigration, right? They're going to, they're going to follow Chinese immigrants who are moving around. They're going to be um, supplying tips and other things. And that really helps the agent, but other things like say smuggling liquor The community might just say, you know, that's how our community makes money. And the, you know, the customs agent at that, that area is just totally shut out, not invited to any social events if they start investigating these kinds of things. Um, and so it, you know, you have local communities driving a lot of international policy in ways that I certainly didn't appreciate before. I delved into uh, both the policy and the placement of people, but also the, the sort of individual experiences of, of the agents who are in charge of this on the ground, who feel often isolated and unsupported by the governments, but also the communities around them who are writing histories of the border, um, their life crisscrosses the border, and they rarely even mention it. Right For them, it's, it's the cities they're moving between, the border just sort of fades from view. And I realized that the border sort of pops up in people's lives during moments of crisis. But for much of its history, depending on the community you are, especially for um british immigrants with some wealth and some education the, the border is just like a minor trifle um and, and that was one of the sort of big conclusions that um that i reached after reading so many of these like personal correspondence and diaries and things like that
1: if you were kind of just explaining i almost want to ask like a like you know philosophically what does what is a border you know uh you know if there's a a kind of a night a sense with which you now have come to understand borders that you think uh you know maybe most people don't have that if they thought about borders in these terms maybe or if they you know when reading the news or whenever you're hearing about you know either border issues in Ukraine and Russia or border issues mm-hmm. in US and Mexico uh, of course you don't have to go down a political route necessarily but you know is there is there a way now that when you're reading the news or seeing things or hearing about borders that you're like I'm actually thinking about this quite differently than I did before I did this project.
2: Yeah, so I think one of, the, one of the, the changes in the way that I thought about this was, as I was reading all these stories, I realized that borders are always gonna create disputes. Life, life is filled with sort of a spectrum of identities, right? You, you almost never get everyone on one side of a geog- arbitrary geography, to believe one thing. And on the opposite side, they believe totally different things. Religions cross borders, animals cross borders, occupations, like every part of our life crisscrosses borders. And so drawing a line right down the middle of that is an inherently conflict generating thing, right? You're somehow saying, you know, someone 300 meters from you has less in common with you than someone 500 miles from you. Right, Someone who lives in a different geography, a different climate, a different, sometimes, especially in the United States, a totally different political climate, that those people should have more in common with you because you share a common American citizenship than the person who you know, walks their life almost in parallel to you, 300 yards from your house, just because an arbitrary line divides you. That's, that's a really challenging thing to do, to separate identities like that. And they always bleed across those border lines. And so when conflicts occur, I think it's it's interesting, less that they occur, right? I think that's just a fundamental part of trying to draw arbitrary borders and more around why, right? Is this a, is this a cultural class? Is, is it religious? Is it a fight over territory? Is it, you know, an imagined empire, right? We sort of go back to the United States once imagining Canada as part of its territory, but it'll imagine all kinds of places around the world as part of the greater United States. Um, and so I think that's, what sort of changed is I'm, I'm less surprised when border disputes happen and I'm, I'm more curious why. And I guess the other thing that I've become more and more interested in is I would have thought that as technology changes the world we live in, right, so we have satellites guarding borders and heat sensors and all of these things, we're creating more and more walls all around the world, like physical barriers, um, which were imagined in the 19th century. You know, we talk about um, the US's wall with Mexico, but one of the first walls that was proposed right around the 20th century was um, like a, an electrified fence that would notify border guards in Canada if people were trying to cross up north, and they were particularly worried about Chinese immigrants. So this, this idea of using walls is really, really old, more than 100 years old at this point. Um, but it's interesting to me that with all this technology, we're in some ways moving back to physical barriers in a way that I think the 19th century border guards realized was not a very cost-effective solution. And they moved much more towards indirect control rather than trying to put up these, these massive barriers.
1: That's a really fascinating answer. Uh, And, you know, I like, I like that sort of advice of, you know, to when, when there's border disputes or border issues to not be surprised, but to look for, you know, why is this happening? Because like, as you, as you say, like, you know, it, it creates, you know, Putting a border somewhere does inevitably create some sort of conflict because so you're going to be separating people in groups that, you know, might not have, you know, agreed to, formally agreed to, what those borders are. Uh, so, well, Ben, uh, you know, before, uh, before moving on, I was wondering if, you know, if there's anything else that you're working on, any new project either following up on this or something totally different.
2: Yeah. So I, I pick somewhat foolish projects that become bigger and bigger over time, but, uh, One of the sort of stories that I didn't have time for in this book was, um, so borders are really expensive to make hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, more than a hundred thousand dollars in more than a hundred thousand days worth of labor, just to create the border between the Rocky mountains and the Pacific coast, right? They're, They're expensive. And so having spent all of this money and all of this time to build this border, that's meaningful, I became really curious with these stories about each country reaching across their border to punish criminals living abroad. So you've built this border. You say at this line and no further does my power go. You've spent all this money. And then one of the first things you do is you send your police officers across the border to kidnap people from a country, from a foreign land. Um, so I'm really interested in extradition, um, extra legal renditions, these state sponsored kidnappings, um, prisons that hold foreigners. Um, so I think that's where my next project is going to go is into the, the, the realm of punishment, into the realm of projecting your power into lands you don't control, um, looking at, yeah, law, um, and sort of, um, punitive practice as a way of understanding this, I think, fairly hidden side of borders that we don't always think about or don't always see, um sort of send their tendrils into other countries and undermine all of the sort of work of trying to make a clean division between nations.
1: That, that sounds like a wonderful topic. And you know, when when you come out with the book, please uh, let us know, and we would love I'd love to interview you again. Uh, well, Ben, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>